Kelly Higdon with Starting a Counseling Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Caroline Buzenko, a registered psychologist in Canada. And today we're going to talk about her story in her journey of building a practice and how she's moved from not only having a practice focused on working with kiddos, but turning her passion into that work, into training. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. How did you start getting into private practice? It's such a long story, (laughs) but no, um, I I guess really, I'm just kind of one of those people who've always flown by the seat of my pants. Mm -hmm. Literally, you know, my friend's like, Hey, there's this counseling program. We should get our master's in counseling and have a coffee shop or we can, you know, become counselors. So it was kind of like that. Literally, as I was graduating, someone uh, had asked me, are you going to register as a psychologist? And I was like, we can register as a psychologist. That's so cool. So I really was not on that path. It was Mm -hmm. just, Hey, that sounds like a great idea, but private practice has always been something that I've just had to do. I think it's because I've got a little bit of ADHD. Well, no, I I have ADHD. It's not a little bit. I have lots (laughs) of ADHD and uh, working for an agency has always been hard. All of the administrative meetings that just were, you know, wasting time, um, deadlines that didn't make sense, just all of these demands. And I really wanted to get back to I want to work with the kiddos. I mean, I work primarily with children and teens and the families and I want to work with them and I want to spend my time. You know, we do all these funding meetings, for example. I'm like, why are we just sitting around wasting an hour of funding when we could actually be putting that into the work that we do? So I love the flexibility of private practice. That's really where it came down to. I could do the work that I loved with the people that I loved and have that flexibility and and kind of create that the work and lifestyle that we all want, right. That we all dream of. And so that's kind of where all of that came to be. And I could make my own hours and I didn't have to worry about all of the red tape and everything else that needed to be done. What would you say is it was like for you with having a neurodivergent brain and building a practice? How do you build a practice for you that really works well for what you did not want to create, which is what happened in the agency work and things like that? It's been good and bad, I think, because it is a little bit fly by the seat of my pants. Um, And so I'm starting to learn all of the things that you guys teach, right? Mm -hmm. And and how to break it down step by step. Um, Whereas it's all been trial and error. I mean, Mm -hmm. things that I hear now all the time, get an admin assistant. As soon as you don't think you need one, it's probably the time you need to get one. I mean, I've been doing private practice since 2007 and I'm just getting an admin person and I'm Mm -hmm. drowning and it's hard to let things go. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) so the downside of things, um, you know, getting insurance documents still done, you know, that stuff is still really hard for me on the administrative side, but it has helped me having neurodivergent brain connect with kiddos. I'm still kind of a kid at heart. And I think that that's, what's really been helpful for my practice is parents are like, Oh my gosh, my teenager won't talk to anyone. I know that he'll click with you. Um, because I kind of have that 
it's a hyperactive sort of energy and I can really understand what they're going through. Mm. And I'm kind of like, oh man, like how much do your parents nag at you? Right. I can commiserate with them. So I think on the clinical side of things, it's been fantastic. And the flexibility, like I said, I can today be working with kiddos, but tomorrow I could be teaching or I could be doing something else. I could be in a school. So there's so much flexibility that way that I'm not stuck in one office in one role. Mm -hmm. So that's been great. It's just, yeah, the administrative stuff I'm still trying to figure out and the system still trying to figure all that out. I think too, that there's something about having grace for who you are and compassion for that place and allowing others to support the spots where it's not your strength or it's not something you really want to do. Um, that is okay. You know, um, I could design a website, but it's not my passion you know? <laughs> or, and having someone else help with that. Or I, you know, there's little parts of running the practice that I think it is important to pay attention to where are you, your highest and best and letting the rest go to people so that they can do what they're really great at if that's organizing or whatever. Miranda is ADD and I do not. Um, so it's a nice little pairing in terms of how she gets things done and how I get things done. And so that way we support each other and not strengths and weaknesses, just differences. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's good that you've got each other that you can kind of compliment because yes. I think in private practice, you can get well being by yourself can mm-hmm. be really tricky. And so bringing on those other people, um, well, even I just hired a new admin and he's like, I'll come in and I can look at your space. And I, and he got really geeked out about where we can put furniture and how we can make it more user-friendly. And, you know, I think everyone has so much value that they can bring and mm-hmm. you don't have to do it alone, even mm-hmm. if it is just your own private practice, you know? So why kids and teens? Cause that's the one thing I did not want to do. Well, that and couples in my practice, but why kids and teens for you? Like, how did that come about? I have always all, even when I was a kid myself, I mean, I'm an eighties kid. So I was babysitting when I was, you know, eight years old, (laughs) wouldn't happen these days, but, um, you know, I, I've just always loved kids. So in high school, I, I, um, volunteered with kiddos with disabilities. And so I would take them swimming or go do fun stuff or do their camps with them. And I went into, once I graduated from my undergrad, I started working with kiddos with autism. Um, And I just loved, because I think it's the playful side of me. I love Mm. getting down and being on the ground and um, just that energy and just their sort of outlook of life. I've just always really been able to connect. And I think because I'm such a kid all the time, um, you know, I'll do professional sort of seminars and there are some parents like, this is not the professional seminar that I was hoping for. It's usually only one or two in the crowd, for example, but um, I, I just have that sort of connection because I think I am a bit of a kid and I do see them as that vulnerable piece. I don't have the same place in my heart, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to empathy, all the things that we need to do to be really strong, highly effective therapists, I don't connect in the same way with adults as I do as the kiddos. So. Yeah. Again, honoring who we are yeah. and where our strengths lie and what a beautiful way to build a practice. Now you talked about effectiveness and you know, a big thing at Zanimi is about outcomes and really making sure that 
whatever we do is in service of not only improving the bottom line of our business and making more money and, and taking care of ourselves, but it's in also in service of better outcomes for the clients. What does that process look like for you and your practice? And how has that turned into a passion for you? In terms of the outcomes piece, I mean, I do, uh, I mean, I'm always reading all the research anyways, and it's disheartening, you know, especially when you look at the recent stuff that's come out just in terms of uh, graduate school, we're not actually competent when we leave and supervision doesn't actually help and workshops don't actually help with all of those kinds of things, but it's coming back to the clients. I'm always asking Um, within sessions, I do rating skills, lots and lots of rating skills Mm -hmm. with everyone that, you know, are, is this even what we're talking about? How much on a scale of one to 10, how much of this is even important to you? So looking at values and, um, and even with my kids, right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how young they are. Is this something that's actually going to help you? And I think that that's really important because it's usually they're, they're kind of mandated clients Mm because it's usually parents who are bringing them in. Mm -hmm. And so I, I always tell, especially my teens, like, I don't want to just sit here and waste an hour of your time. That's not going to be helpful. How can we work together? So really that collaborative approach is always so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then doing that check-in, are we actually doing anything that's valuable to you? And are we actually making some progress? And I am someone within four sessions need to start seeing progress. Mm-hmm. So I am, when I look at outcomes and especially when I'm working with families, I mean, anxiety is a big piece of my practice. And so I need to be seeing progress within one to four sessions. And if not, a switch needs to be made, whether it's our approach and how we're doing it, or uh, maybe I'm not your best fit here, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm not about, I am definitely a brief therapist. I'm not someone that you're going to see forever and ever and ever, especially with anxiety. I can sometimes do one session is enough. Um, so that's with the kids piece, getting their buy-in and making sure that we are ticking along, but then also from the parents perspective, because especially with anxiety, it is a family approach, right? Mm -hmm. It's a family solution. It's not just the individual. So looking at the family, what are you noticing differently? So getting a lot of that qualitative sort of feedback is so important just to make sure that we are on the right track and doing what's going to be meaningful and helpful for them. So you have the private practice, but then you've grown that into other things. So can you talk about that process of here I am, I'm meeting with these kids, I'm doing the outcomes, I'm tracking, I'm making sure that progress is being made. And then how do you move from that into the next step? Yeah. So I actually, I've been teaching as well, pretty much since I, um, became a psychologist, I really started, um, doing teaching and supervising. So, um, I, you know, right now I've got two master's students, um, and I've got two PhD students, one doing a practicum and one actually doing her internship with me. And, through that training over the years, it's been about a decade now that I've been doing that, um, just seeing what they've been learning and being able to implement, you know, especially with anxiety, it's like, oh, here's your CBT manual or, oh, here's, you know, um, this program that I've seen. And we kind of step by step try to go through it. And I realized, wait a second, there are things in this program that was developed in like 1982 that people are still using it's outdated and and we're using even though you know we're in 2021 now there's outdated sort of things that 
they're being trained in. And I see it all the time with families who've been going to therapy for lots of different, um, with lots of different people for many, many years. And so I see a lot of kind of shoddy work. So I've started, um, doing lots of workshops Mm-hmm. locally. And then I've started doing workshops a little bit more internationally over the past couple of years to get some training out around anxiety because, you know, kiddos, I can only see a handful of kiddos. I want people doing effective work around the world. And so I've shifted over to the Koru Learning Institute. So my private practice is Koru Psychology, but the Koru Learning Institute, where we're actually doing competency-based training programs, because we know just going to a workshop, you know, getting your CE credits, you might have some really great ideas, but it doesn't actually affect our effectiveness. It doesn't actually create us, you know, to be highly effective therapists, for example. And so I was looking at all of that research combined with what I was seeing and all of the misconceptions, especially around anxiety, for example, that I have developed actual training programs where it's not just you sit and listen to a workshop for six hours and hope you can go implement it. It's hands-on, it's consultation, it's feedback, all of those kinds of things so that we are optimizing those outcomes. Because Mm -hmm. the other thing with research, I mean, we, we do know that we as therapists often think that we're doing a lot better than we are. We get worse with time. And we (laughs) get worse with time. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. And I think there's also this fear of knowing uh, how we're doing, because I think a lot of people, um, we are not taught to ask for the feedback or how to go about that. That's one of our trainings where we talk about how to have those conversations, how to create a culture of feedback informed treatment so that from the beginning, people know that, no, this is okay, negative or positive or neutral, it's needed in order for you, you to do well. And for me to, to be what you need. Um, it's just something I I was never taught in school. I know that and never in supervision practicums or any of that kind of thing. And there's just sort of that, well, we're either appeasing an insurance panel or a government agency that is funding or a grant. That's who we are making sure is happy. (laughs) Right. Uh, instead of really focusing on that therapeutic relationship and what the transformation is and how do you know that you're doing a really great job. And we don't often have a lot of ways of knowing that without doing more feedback informed treatment. So how has it been? I think this is something that comes up a lot when people are like, well, I have my practice and now I want to do trainings and now I'm going to have a course. How, what has that been like for you to juggle both worlds? Because they are connected, but they're also their own businesses in a way. They really are. It's hard. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. stressful. And I think that's another strength with ADHD. We can be serial achievers and, you know, have all this energy to do all of these different things, but it is important. And and I started doing anxiety training. um, I mean, been 15 years or more, Mm -hmm. but I'm still learning every time I do a workshop, I'm learning new information and new information. So it's good in that it's keeping me up to date, but it is definitely tricky. And, uh, you know, maybe, especially if you've got a busy practice already and people are wanting to see you and you have to really set those boundaries. I think that that's a huge piece that you're dedicating this time. And I think Mm -hmm. that's true, no matter what you're doing, even with your private practice, you know, I'm dedicating this time to do my marketing, for example, or my networking 
being. Mm-hmm. And it's the same sort of thing, knowing this is a core training day. This is a client day and really trying to shift your mindset that I'm not worried about everything that I need to do for the training Institute. Cause I'm here with my clients. And so being able to be mindful, I guess, with whatever it is that you're doing and the scheduling, which is a nightmare sometimes for the ADHD brain, but that is critical. So sitting down, these are my three priorities. I mean, that's the magic number that we know in the research. That's, that's good. These are my three priorities for today. I'm not doing anything else. I'm going to identify my time robbers, email, social media, you know, things that are going to take away from me getting these three things done. And so being very structured and and creating those boundaries, I think is so critical and asking for help and, and, and having support from different people or a mentor or anything like that. And knowing that, I mean, we always say we have to put back in, put money back into our company to be able to make it grow. And so you're, I I've have to hire people to help support me along the way. Mm-hmm. I think that's just such a great reflection because I, I do weigh heavily on the organization piece and I live by my calendar and I live by my Asana task list. Like every project, everything is running in there. And then that's what I know to do. Because if I start thinking I can create a lot more work for myself, I can get really creative and do amazing things, but I don't get anything fully done or <laughs> what needs to get done doesn't get done. Right. And I, I think it's important that those of you who are listening to this, that you understand that you can grow in any way you want, but systems and organization are what's going to help make that easier for you. And in whatever you create, have feedback loops so that you can make it better and better and better. Because when it's better for your clients, it's better for you too. I I imagine like, even as you're saying, you improve on the training, you feel more confident because you're up to date on research and then clients are getting really great training that way. Yeah. Well, and that kind of reminds me, you know, if we look at the mindset of the most effective entrepreneurs around the globe, the one consistent characteristic or mindset that they have is looking for those opportunities for failure. And they're like, yes, that didn't work. So what is this going to tell me how to do things better? And it's taken me a long time, but those systems and processes, you know, I'm fine tuning and fine tuning and they are so important. And we might make the excuse, oh, I don't need that right now. Right. Or I don't need to do that right now because I'm, I need to focus on this work, but there's always going to be other work. And so being able to set, I mean, those three priorities for me, you know, um, And looking for, I always reflect at the end of the day, what could I do a little bit differently tomorrow to make my day easier or to get my priorities done? You know, what were some of those slip ups? Because that can be really helpful. And I've been one of those people where, you know, I've maybe tried to get a workshop off the ground and I wasted all this time and all this money and nobody signs up. And then you feel really disheartened, but what can I, being able to shift, you can have your little moment of sorrow, but in grief, but, but shift, what, what can I do to be even better? And, Mm -hmm. and I think just going back to what you said earlier, you know, for the feedback informed treatment, I know that that's something I've talked a lot about, especially with my counseling interns, where we, we look at all of um, Scott Miller's work, for example. Mm -hmm. And, and I I remember one doctoral student, she's like, Carolyn, I've been doing this for so long. And like, it's still, I don't want you to come sit in with me, but I know the research and I know how much I need to do it, but that's, what's going to help us grow, whether it's in our practice, 
you know, building our private practice, but also just in our practice with our clients as well. Yeah. So share some of the trainings that you do have the workshops that you offer. So I do have an anxiety one, of course, because I do see so many um, things like fear hierarchies, for example, where we think, you know, we should do a fear hierarchy and we'll slowly work up that fear hierarchy. I see it all the time. We're actually slowing our client progress down. So there's things like that, that we're doing in practice. So a lot of that, that program was built out of all of these faulty sort of practices that we're doing or doing exposures until a client habituates. So until they're feeling calm and relaxed, that could actually be really detrimental. That could be making our client's anxiety worse. And so the, the masterclass program, it has eight modules. There's this anxiety compass where it, 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 it's not a step-by-step because we don't want that. We fo- that's how we fall into these traps of this cookie cutter sort of cookbook a- approach. We really need to be able to individualize, but it's, these are the eight core pieces that we need to understand, understanding what anxiety is and what maintains it. And oftentimes we as therapists are maintaining the anxiety without even knowing it. Mm. Um, and so it's being able to shift our practices, bringing parents in. I work with kids. So if you, you and the, the program really is for kids, but it's, it can be helpful for everyone, especially knowing how to set up proper exposures, for example, and, and just, we don't necessarily need to do cognitive reframing. So it's looking at all of those pieces. Uh, how can we shift how we're doing our work, building our, our toolbox, but there's also ongoing consultation. So we have weekly meetings where we are getting feedback and you're able to bring your video where you can be like, okay, you know, Caroline, let's deconstruct. What did I, what was going well in my session? What are some things that I could be doing differently? So there is that piece where you are getting some of that feedback. So the anxiety one is a big one. I also have one um, for ADHD, working with kiddos um, with ADHD to be successful. And a new one that I've just started is a therapeutic assessment, but within a psychoeducational framework, because, you know, for all of the therapeutic assessors out there, we know that it could take three to six months in the psychoeducational world. You don't have that much time. Early intervention is critical. We need to have these assessments done within a few weeks. And so it's being able to, how do we bring that collaborative sort of approach to the, the, the educational sort of assessments that we're doing and bringing intervention and, extended inquiry and bringing families along and all of those kinds of things. So those are the three big ones right now that I'm focusing on. I love it. I love how every time I do this podcast, people's story is replayed and the narrative informs the business always, you know, of like just your own story, your own brain, the way you work and how it has turned into this beautiful business And how you take that passion that saying like, you know, when you have any neurodivergence, the world is wanting the cookie cutter, right? And it's like, this is how all brains work, but that isn't the case. And you're also taking that approach clinically for people of saying, this this is not the case. We need something that's really more organic, that's more in tune with what research says, but also what the clients are saying. And I think it's a beautiful mirroring of your own story and how you've built this business. And I'm hoping that this is of encouragement to people because each 
person listening has their own story and that business is deserving of benefiting from that story. And I feel that when we step into those truths, our businesses are better for it. So thank you so much for sharing your journey. Um, it's been lovely to chat today. Thank for you. those who want to check you out, um, you want to share your website? Yeah, it's drcarolinebuzanko.com. So C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E-B-U-Z-A-N-K-O.com. Uh, and yeah, all the courses and trainings are on there. And for listeners, there's a 20% off uh, code if you put in Zinni for anyone listening for any of the workshops or training programs that I've got. Awesome. We'll have the details in the show notes and we'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.